as I said before, my name is Rod. My pronouns are he and him. Uh, so welcome this morning. Sorry, it's a bit of a Rod show today. Uh, Tamsin is away and Shane is sick as of this morning. And uh, someone he had a dinner party with a couple of nights ago came down with COVID the next day. So, you know, safety first when it comes to this community. So he's not here. Um, so Yeah, so it's sort of wall-to-wall me. Apologies. Uh, we are in the middle of a series um, on humility, hospitality and gratitude and we're kind of focusing on hospitality for the first part of the series. It's not planned, it's just happened. Uh, and last week we had um, the very lovely Dr Merrill Blair come and talk to us about hospitality in the Hebrew scriptures, which was uh, fabulous and if you weren't here I'd recommend listening to it on the, the podcast because she is just uh, a magic person to listen to. Uh, and I thought this morning we might just continue that and have a little bit of a look at um, some more hospitality in the New Testament. Um, but uh, the first thing I wanted to do was a little activity because we like activities. Um, it came out of me uh, reflecting on the relationship that we have with Scripture as a community, and that um, it's like because a lot of us were brought up with a sense that our, the way we engage with Scripture is just to try to get it right, and there's only one right way of engaging with it. Uh, it means that some of us still feel that intense pressure to try to get Scripture right, and others of us, um, it's almost like we've gone to the other end of the spectrum. <laughs> like our, our goal is to get it wrong. Um, to sort of, what is it about this that pisses me off the most and to articulate that, which is a totally legitimate response. But um, I thought it might be nice to think, what's the kind of, uh, what's a helpful metaphor for Scripture that might uh, help us to think about uh, the, the dangers of Scripture but also the treasure? Anyway, I'm not going to ruin the activity by talking too much. I'm just going to show you a picture of an old derelict building. And, um, and this, is a, this is an activity that you can participate, whatever relationship you have or don't have with the Bible. Um, how is the Bible like an old derelict building? Yeah? So even if you, you know almost nothing about the Bible, it's, uh, you kind of know, I'm sure you know what it is. And uh, just as with the Bible, there is no right answer to this question. Uh, the idea is just to, yeah... Go crazy, let your imagination go wild. And um, there's an activity I sometimes do with students, you know, just to get them um, making connections because that can be quite fruitful. So with the people at your table, um, if, you're not, if there's no one else at your table, I'm talking about you, Warwick, um, then you, might, you could join another table. And just, uh, yeah, whatever comes to mind. I'll give you like two or three minutes to think, how is the Bible like an old derelict building? And there are no wrong answers. So, go. Okay, thanks everyone. Um, you may or may not have been talking about that question, but that's fine. <laughs> anyone got any, anyone got any thoughts? Um, yep. Warwick, just Carly before was saying that um, yeah, kind of 
for some people they'll see it as a fixer-upper and for other people they'll see it as something that needs to be torn down. I liked that. Warwick? Uh, I thought they both smelt funny and uh, I don't go into either of them very often. Um, but also, yeah, I, I look at an old thing like that and similarly feel a bit of a sort of sense of you know, awe and there's sort of a regal majesty to an old thing like that. Thanks, Warwick. Any other thoughts? Oh, I'll come to you next, Annika. Well, I was just thinking about like how it doesn't look like much to a lot of people and it's kind of run down and sort of not an ideal home for a lot of people, but people who may be humble and not have much would see that and see somewhere they can live and find a safe place in. Thanks, Rachel. Beautiful. Yeah, we talked a bit about the sentimentality attached to it. Like, this really meant a lot to a group of people. And maybe that meaning is exhausted, but maybe not. Um, that this could mean, again, a lot of things to and maybe a new set of people. Um, but yeah, that there was a lot of meaning attached to it. Mark. Hello, I'm Mark. He, him, his. And we said quite a few things. One of them was, there only appears to be one Bible in our house and there's one house on our wall. Um, we're wondering why, why, why I wrote the comparison with an old derelict building. Maybe you mentioned that and I'm sorry, I was distracted before, did you know? No, no, no reason. I, I mean, no, I'm just interested to people's responses just to get... Okay. And something about torn pages, wasn't there? Older, when, and a Bible here is very old and it's an old book, right? Thanks, Mark. Any other? Oh, you can pass. Thanks, Rod. Um, if you're going to, you want to do something with the uh, the building, um, you need to understand the structure of it. Um, like if you just sort of, oh, well, I don't like that wall and I'll take it out, um, you might find that, hey, I don't, don't really, un so it's, we need to need to have some understanding of the structure of, of of it and the foundations it's built on to actually enter into trying to move it forward. Yeah. It's really only when you sit with it, live in it, um, get to understand the richness of its history. Uh, even talk to people who've had association with it over the years that you can fully understand and appreciate it uh, for what it is. And only then are you really in a state where you can say, this is how we can make it relevant to our life. I love this kind of activity when lots of people say things that you've not anticipated. Beautiful. Anything else that people wanted to say? That's okay. Um, for me, the, the things, the reason I came up with this analogy was um, just because it, it feels like it captures the danger of the Bible for many of us and the fact that we perhaps need safety equipment and we need to be accompanied before we risk going into um, the Bible. 
and the recognition that there is a lot of kind of things you can cut yourself on in an old derelict building like with the Bible. There are lots of things that can damage you and there are lots of things that have damaged us in the past and that, um, that has to be a part of our engagement with the Bible, a recognition of that, an acknowledgement of that, an acknowledgement that some people have been damaged a lot more perhaps than I have or um, some people have much more wariness, much less desire to engage with the Bible at all because of that experience. But also a recognition of the, the flip side of that, which we've touched on, that with an old derelict building, there is this sense that someone built it um, and it has this history, this rich history, and if we engage it in the light of um, what drove someone to build this in the first place, uh, what is that history, that um, we can perhaps have more of a balance of wariness but also compassion for this thing. And that um, an anticipation because of that history that there might actually be treasure in this place. Um, if we explore it, there might be um, yeah, gold under the floorboards uh, that is the real riches there, uh, but that yeah, we need to handle it with care. Um, so thank, yeah, thanks for indulging me with that. Um, oh, what am I doing? I'm trying to, oh, there we go. Uh, so yeah, yeah, what we're gonna do today is have a look at the, what some people call the parable of the prodigal son, some people call it the parable of the loving father, um, some call it the parable of the two sons, people try to call it a more inclusive thing. Um, but as we, as we look at this scripture, I guess I want us to try to bring that that kind of double lens to the way that we read it to go, yeah, there will be cut broken glass and asbestos in this passage for us. And it's totally fine to acknowledge that, point some of those things out. Um, and if we're going to engage with scripture as a community, we need to know where people are coming from and what they are dealing with when, they, when we ask them to approach this building, often a lot of pain and a lot of damage. Um, but also hopefully we can approach it with a, with a sense that for some of us at least there is um, a rich history with this text that has given us a lot of treasure um, and that there may be both of those things in any passage that we deal with. Um, but that, um, as a womanist scholar that I was listening to said this week, in, a, in a, something I was listening to, um, if I... If our focus is on trying to get the scripture right, then it's not going to provide us with much. But if as a community we're trying to say, these people wrote these things because they had joy and life in their engagement and encounter with God, um, then if there's an anticipation that, that our desire as a community is to find some joys, find some life, find some treasure in this text, however difficult and complex it might be in other ways, then um, yeah, hopefully there might be some richness for all of us. Anyway, that's enough about that. Uh, I haven't asked anyone to read this yet, so have a think about whether you'd be willing to read it while I give a little introduction. Um, so as I say, we're going we're gonna to have a look at this um, parable of Jesus, and I guess I want to think about these questions. So first, what is the broken glass and asbestos in this story? What is the treasure 
Um, but because we're looking at hospitality, um, to have a little focus on hospitality in this passage as well, what can we learn from this story about God's hospitality to us? What can we learn from this story about how we might be hospitable to other people? And um, the last question, which will be the focus of the very short thing that I say at the end of our discussion, uh, and that is, what can we learn from this story about how we might be hospitable to ourselves? Um, this is something I have never reflected on before with this parable, but um, that's, that's what it, how it spoke to me this week. Uh, so I've given you a little bit of thinking time. Would anyone like to read this for us? Warwick's got his, I don't mind doing it, voice, I mean face on, so thanks Warwick. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Thanks, Warwick. So let's start with the broken glass and asbestos. Was there anyone, anyone want to talk about things in the passage that were difficult or provocative or... Um, Uncomfortable. 
I mean, there's obvious things like, you know, uh, it being father and son, very patriarchal story, the presence of all these servants. <laughs> um, so, that, yeah, there's some obvious things that we might go, that's, a, that's an old story that I'm uncomfortable with in certain respects. Anything else that was uncomfortable for you? Just, um, I noticed that the older brother was out in the field and he just heard the noise. So clearly he hadn't even been invited to the celebration, which jars a bit. Yeah, maybe the story needed one or two more edits. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else that jars or cuts? Uh, just the use of the word sin in that, like just such a loaded term. So rather than I've disrespected you, but I've sinned against you. Yeah, it is a word that's loaded with so many unhelpful things for us. Um, I, I come from a family where I'm the second son, the younger son, and even though I don't parallel the story, um, my older brother was always given things before me, like first he always had, like he got shown how to shave and he got a bottle of uh, port bought for his birthday and his day of birth and then opened on his 21st and so, and I got nothing like that for me. So it was like, and I understand for parenting, you give everything to your first child and then it sort of gets, like I've done this before and the second child has a, a different dynamic, which, which I get that, but as being the younger son, I'm always sensitive to being left out or forgotten, and even though in this story, you know, the other guys always had anything, I can't get past the fact that I've missed out. And so, whatever other meanings in the parable, it's like I'm still choked up on that bit. So it's hard to hear the rest of it. Um, and it's a common parable too that I've heard in lots of places. And it's like I, I, my handbrake's already on. So, <laughs> so I'm, I've got my lung disease with asbestos already. So, <laughs> thanks, Matt. I've got to say, as an older child, um, I always had this feeling, why do I have to be the one who has to battle and be the front runner all the time and the younger children get the advantages of that and get things so much easier? Um, and I can see in that story this feeling of injustice that as uh, within a family the child who is the constant, who is the... Um, supporter who acts more low-key, follows the rules, uh, can tend to go under the radar. And the family focus is often on the child who has all the ups and downs because they have needs. But the one who does the dramatic thing, like run off and live a wild life and then come home with their tail between their legs and suffering in all sorts of different ways... Uh, and the difficulty for the father in balancing off the care for his various children under that circumstance. Yeah, it's funny, just this morning I was talking to my second child about her saying, I wish I could be like my older sister who's able to, to push back and argue and fight with you because I can't, can't do that. And I said, well, the flip side of that is that you don't have to fight so much because she creates space that you can just walk into. <laughs> um, 
And yes, there's such complex dynamics. And I know my oldest child who, poor love, she's in a family of three other second children. So, <laughs> and yeah, she's sobbing the other day about no one, no one understands. There are no more oldest children in this family. So yeah, it's um, <laughs> that, yeah, those dynamics are really complex. And you know, I'm not sure Jesus was really as plugged into developmental psychology as some of us are. So I guess we can forgive him a little bit. But, um, but yeah, it's fascinating, those dynamics. Yeah. Carly. It's just interesting, just as an aside, everyone's responses, because I was going to say, I feel like there's another older brother, because that is just some wild middle child energy going on, where it's like, I've done all this work, and no one notices, and everyone's just ignored me my whole life. But um, I've... I think there's a, a real challenge in the um, the connection of uh, money and morality and how that's been weaponized in, our, in like a, a capitalist-based society of like your financial success equals like your moral worth as a as a human and I think that that's a part of the passage that's really been weaponized in our sort of current society to say if you spend money in a way that's seen as incorrect or wild or extravagant that there's a, a sense of moral failure connected to that yeah well you got my imagination going now I'm thinking about an amazing midrash for a middle daughter in this story like her seeing the younger son and the older son and her going wow now I'm completely invisible in this story Annika um, I think one of the things that in my tradition like sort of applied across parables is like who's God, which character represents God. And I think the father has always been like the, the God in the story or the Jesus, um, which just allows for the like one upping. Um, like as someone said before, the, the um, older son is not even invited to the party and um, it just allows for this, like, ah, but I've done you one better, um, and allows for this sort of, I don't know, manipulation in human kind of relationships to be like, no, but it was for a holy purpose, so it's all okay. Um. Yes, exactly. Um, so just, again, trying to focus on hospitality, um, was there any treasure in here that you, um, you know, it can, it can relate to either God's hospitality to, uh, to us, our hospitality to others, our hospitality to ourselves. Any other um, treasure in this passage that you want to comment on, share? Oh, thanks, Corey. Yes, so um, I think the obvious reading is uh, that the the son who sinned is obviously, you know, sinners. And the son who didn't is the faithful, I guess. And um, so there's a big celebration when the son who sinned, uh, the sinners turn away from the sin, right? Um, and more hospitality is shown to the one who sinned more because it's like a bigger, a bigger deal, I guess. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. And that just seems to be such a theme of a lot of Jesus' parables. And, you know, like the lost sheep, you've got 99 that are not lost and one that is lost and finding that one is this incredible celebration. 
Thanks. Um, I think there's a lot for me that I want to take from this story, like from both sons. Um, the first son giving himself permission to leave. Um, I was telling someone a story. I went and saw a movie the other day and with my partner and, like, I was just hating it. Like, it was really scary and I was getting triggered and I just, I, like, just didn't enjoy my time watching the movie. And I said to my partner, I'm not having fun. And she said, oh, do you want us, we can go. And I was like, I can go. I can leave. I don't have to be here. Um, and I was like, no, you're having fun. Like, you stay, I'll leave. Um, and that, like, being able to give yourself permission of, like, this sucks. I'm going to leave <laughs> is a kind of an amazing agency move um, that I'm envious of. And the other uh, envy, I guess, I have of, of this, of the older brother is um, the agency of speaking up, of saying, this is how you have hurt me and you've really hurt me deeply in this way and... I'm mad at you for that. Um, so, yeah, both things I want to take from that. Yeah, because I guess the older son could very easily have just gone to the party but just been chock-a-block full of resentment. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, it's power in that. Matt. Um, and sorry if this is taking it to some other things that are, might only be relevant to me, but um, I think for me, um, one of the things that is really beautiful about all the treasure in this story is the lack of uh, punishment that is dealt out by the father. Um, I've been reading a book called The Nonviolent Atonement and the author points to the story as an example of why God does not need death to pay for sin um, and that his forgiveness is free and that it is just, the hospitality is just, you're welcome back and I want you back and there is no need to pay for the wrong that has been done. It is just, I've got more and you're welcomed into it. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that's... Great, because that's a segue to what I want to say. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. I, I, I'll pay you later. So, yeah. Um, because, yeah, just very quickly, because I'm conscious of the time, very quickly I wanted to talk uh, about my journey with this parable because where I started was in a church where God needed death to forgive us. Um, and so... Yeah, this parable kind of, there was a real tension in reading this parable because uh, even though you have this loving father who kind of runs, gives up his dignity to embrace this child, in the back of my mind as I'm reading it as a child, I've got the fact that, yes, but God also needs Jesus to die um, so that he can embrace this younger son and it felt, like a tension that made it very difficult to really engage with the idea of a God who embraces us, a God for whom there is just complete loving welcome of us all. Uh, so I, I started there. Um, and because it took me so long to um, 
to understand the kind of non-violent, non-punishing embrace of God. It also took me a long time, I guess, to see that this story shows us that God will be hospitable to us. This, God, this story shows us that, um, that God is not the kind of God who when we come to them, to her, says to us, um, you can come to the party but you have to crawl on your knees for a mile on broken glass before I'll let you in. Um, and that, whether consciously or unconsciously, that was a, the kind of message that I had about God, that, um, that this story was not really what God is like, um, that it's almost like Jesus is kind of <laughs> tricking us. And yet now I think, no, that this is always the vision of God that Jesus had, a God of free embrace, and that Jesus died, as we say in our community prayer, Jesus died not so that God could love us, but so that we could see and love God. Uh, it's the kind of opposite of what I was told. So, so I guess for me, once I have a vision of God that is like that, it then um, it enables me to, to see in this story or it enabled me to see in this story that, that this is what Jesus is calling us to be like this loving father, to be in, in relation to the people around us, to be people who, people of loving welcome, people who are modelling in our relationships with other people, a God who embraces those who don't feel they deserve to be embraced, but a God that also invites those who don't really want to come to a party where undeserving people are going to be to examine that resistance, to examine that sense of superiority or that sense of deserving more and to, to encounter the free, loving embrace of God. Um, the kind of thing that we see in the, the parable where the, the workers in the morning are promised one denarius and then the workers at midday come and then the workers at the end of the day come and the owner of the vineyard gives them all the same amount. And it seems wrong to the people that were hired first. But he said, well, that's what I promised you. I've given you what I promised you. Can't I be generous? Um, so there is, yeah, there's an invitation to us in this parable to, yeah, to be people that model the kind of extravagant grace and generosity of God in the way that we engage with people um, and to be inviting people to this all-inclusive feast through that act of grace and generosity in the way we engage. Um, but as I said, the thing that's, that's new for me with this parable, I, I think this week and this year, is the invitation from this parable for me to be hospitable to myself um, and um, to all of myself. Um, so this year I've become more aware of um, a form of therapy called internal family systems therapy um, and also introduced to an idea called the community of selves. And both ideas are essentially saying that there's a community of selves within us. Um, so all of us have selves within us that are a little bit like 
the younger son. All of us have selves in us that are a little bit like the older son. Um, and all of us have capacity within us to have a self that is like a loving parent, that is like a wise self, that is like um, a welcoming embrace to all our other selves. And this parable doesn't just tell us about what God is like and doesn't just tell us about how to engage with others, but is actually, I think, an invitation to being kinder and more hospitable to ourselves and all of the, the selves in us that feel that we are not deserving of love and the selves within us who feel that we have done so much that deserves reward, that the idea of God welcoming others that have done so much less than us, the idea of God welcoming other parts of ourselves that feel much less worthy, that that, that is just the truth, that God is welcoming that and that we can cultivate a wise self, a loving parent within us that can embrace embrace it all. The, um, the model of community of, of cells was explained to me as like a bus. Um, so your parent self or your wise self or your higher self or your God self is driving the bus and all your other selves are passengers on the bus. <laughs> um, so we could see this as the bus is going to the feast, going to the kingdom of God. And at various points, other selves that are sitting in the passenger seats will come forward to try to take the steering wheel from our wise self because they're afraid or because they're hurt or because they're angry. Uh, and our job in that instance, like the loving father, is to not just tell them to sit down but to engage with them to engage with that hurt, to engage with that fear, to listen to it, to recognise that there's a gift there for us, that that fear is not for no reason, that hurt is not for no reason. Um, so we need to listen to that part of ourselves, but we can't let them take the steering wheel. Or we can't let them slam on the brakes. Uh, so it's a beautiful, for me, it's just been a beautiful and really evocative image that I've carried forward and there's just started to influence more and more my engagement with scripture. Um, and I guess that's the, you know, the, the other thing about the derelict old building is the way we engage with it is so much to do with our, our own history, our own experience, what we bring, what, what our capacities are in any particular moment. And that's, it's okay if our capacity to engage with the Bible is very limited. But it's also really exciting when new ideas, new encounters, new relationships inspire, you know, fresh and exciting and life-giving and joyful readings of the scriptures. So that's, I guess that's what I just want to leave you with today is that invitation from this parable to be more hospitable to yourself, to be more hospitable to all the selves that are within you and to recognise that they all belong, that they all have gifts, um, but that sometimes they need to be spoken to kindly and soothed so that they don't take the wheel and crash the bus. <laughs> Was there anything that people wanted to say before we move to communion? Any other any responses? Any other thoughts, Rachel? Well, I was just thinking about how the passage, I don't know whether it's just the section that you've 
um, taken out, but it sort of ends on a bit of a cliffhanger. We don't know what the um, son in the field says. We don't know whether he says, yeah, you're right. I love my brother and I want to give him hospitality um, or whether he says, no, actually this has really hurt me and I need, I need you to reconcile this. And I think that's really interesting. It's almost a call for us to ask ourselves in the midst of our pain and our hurts, are we going to give the other son some sort of um, empathy and say, yeah, you screwed up, but I still love you? Um, or are we going to say, hey, actually, this really hurt me and it's a boundary I need? Um, yeah. Thanks, Rachel. That's really helpful. And I think it relates to what Annika was saying about the, the, the loving father is not some kind of perfect God figure. Um, and it's, it's possible for us to look at the loving father and say, um, perhaps like us, you need to extend a bit more compassion to your older son in this moment. It's not enough to just say, yeah, but you have to yeah, acknowledge their experience and their hurt. Um, and maybe, yeah, so there's ways in which we can do better than the loving father. Okay, let's do communion. Um, so in, in our community, uh, everyone and anyone is welcome to come and share a bit of cracker and a bit of juice. Um, after a talk like that, obviously, yeah, we want to be a place which welcomes not just all of our internal selves, but all of the selves that are part of this body. Um, so whatever you believe or don't believe, um, you are welcome at this table if you want to participate. And whatever you believe or don't believe, you're also welcome to not participate. If today you don't want to, um, anything is totally fine. Uh, so we come forward, break the crackers up a little bit so there's enough for all of us, take a little cup and form a loose circle. And then when we've done that, uh, I will pray for us and we'll eat and drink together. So come forward if you want to. Inspired by Meryl, um, I just, I want to be Meryl, essentially. Um, and last week she shared a benediction, which was just something that um, came through on Facebook or something for her last week. So I thought, ah, what's, what's come to me this week that I want to share with this community as a benediction? Um, and as you can probably guess, it's from a podcast. Um, so it's a new one for me, Evolving Faith. And one of the hosts of that is a... Um, a guy called Jeff Chu, and uh, this week was the last episode of a series, and they created a benediction out of the um, all of the talks that people gave. Um, and so this is just two sections from that benediction that I thought spoke to today and might speak to you uh, as a benediction. May Jesus the Redeemer overwhelm you with endless grace. Find affirmation for all your questions in the contagious curiosity of the master question asker. See people according to that holy example with kindness and clarity and care. Listen to stories, likewise, with gentleness and candor and warmth. Upend the norms of society and expand your embrace as wide as Jesus did with empathy and curiosity and resolve. Follow Christ into the wilderness when you need rest. Cling to the radical truth that the welcome is wide 
at God's table. There is always a place for you. And may you know the empowerment and support of deep community, community that God has called you into, community that God has given you, community that not just welcomes you, but also wants and indeed needs you to help create that sense of beloved community for others. For you are never alone. Find solidarity among all the creatures of the earth, all the living things that sing of God's creativity, all that summons you back to love. Amen. Go in peace. Mm -hmm.